So kick off, let me make a few points over the shape of the economic recovery so far, um, the monetary policy outlook and a few points on inflation. Now, on the economic recovery, I think this might be a familiar story to a lot of you, but it's good news. So let's carry on telling the good news. The economic numbers for the UK are showing a stronger than expected economic recovery. And if anything, you know, when the ONS revises the back data on GDP, they are revised up rather than down. We've had, since we last met, late, latest numbers for March um, on the economy showing GDP rising by 2.1% on the month. And now about half a percentage point of that reflected the reopening of schools um, in England that took place on the 8th of March. But surveys for April and May have been very buoyant. And if you look at the retail sales numbers, uh, retail sales in March rose by 5.1% in volume terms on the month, which is remarkable considering uh, non-essential retailing um, was effectively still closed for a lot of that period and 9.2% in April. Implications for GDP growth? Well, um, as a whole, what we've done is we've nudged up our forecast for 2021 to 7.7% 7 .7 from 7.5%. 2022, we reckon we'll get 5.5% growth. And as I think I've probably said before a few times, we could easily see economic growth over 2021 exceeding 8%. In terms of what the authorities are saying, the Bank of England lifted its own projection to 7.25% for growth this year from around 5% when it published its monetary policy report earlier in this month. And what that probably means is that the consensus, i.e. city economists forecast will probably follow that as well. In terms of the policy outlook, I've got a little to, to add from, from, from last month. The Monetary Policy Committee, the MPC, kept the bank rate unchanged at 0.1% earlier this month. But what it's done is that it's slowed down its pace of guilt buying, i.e. its QE operations. Now that's slowed to buying about three and a half billion of gilts a week um, from four and a half billion. Now I think as I think I explained last month, that is not a surprise. If it had carried on at its previous pace, it would have met its target um, of £895 billion of total assets late in the third quarter of the year rather than at the end of the year, which is its stated in intention. So the important point here is that Bank of England policy has not changed. With respect to the outlook for interest rates specifically, what we'd invest feel a lot of people in markets forget is that the sequencing of tightening moves when they occur could be different from 2017 when the Bank of England raised interest rates, but it left its stock of QE assets unchanged. Now, this time, the Bank of England's holding a review on the relative merits on whether to increase interest rates first or to reverse QE. Our suspicion is that it will do the latter, i.e. it will probably sell gilts into the market before adjusting rates. So on timing, our inclination is that the MPC will wait until next year for any tightening at all. It wants to make sure that the recovery is self-sustaining. And don't forget, when you look at fiscal policy, we've had a huge amount of cash thrown at the economy from the Chancellor. Next year, fiscal policy will shift from being supportive uh, to mildly restrictive. 
Another point to consider is that the furlough schemes expire in September. Critical point is that the MPC wants to see how the labour market behaves before it seriously considers making a move to tighten policy. Now, its guidance, if you, if you look at um, what it writes, is emphasising the significance of wage pressures in terms of the shape of the medium term inflation outlook. Now, we're not of the view that unemployment will, will jump sharply as both the CJRS and C schemes are withdrawn. But the Bank of England will probably want to wait until the back end of the year to make an assessment of how the labour market's doing before it starts thinking about what the implications could be of fading fiscal support. So really, in short, there's a lot of uncertainty here, but our own view is that we're looking for the first tightening to begin in mid-2022, i.e. in about in a year's time, but that will be the reversal of QE. In other words, the Bank of England will start shrinking its balance sheet and then begin raising rates later, and we think that point will probably occur uh, about a year later, um, in other words, about mid-2023. Now, the final point I'd like to make on is inflation and there's been some interesting news on inflation over the past few weeks particularly from the US. Now the US CPI in April shot up by um, a massive 0.8% on the month um, that resulted in the annual rate rising above 4%. Now a few thoughts on that. First thing on the annual rate is that you're comparing the current level of prices with prices a year ago and that level of prices 12 months ago was very depressed by the start of the pandemic and if you remember US oil prices temporarily went negative um, on one um, rather volatile evening. If you have a, an inflation print that is very strong like we've seen um, you do have to take it seriously of course but if you look at the increase on the month and look at the specific categories that were very buoyant most of it was a bit on commodities, second-hand cars particularly strong, and also airfares. Now, the way that we see that is that it's not a symptom of the economy overheating. What we're looking at is a massive burst of demand suddenly as the economy unlocks and the stimulus payments have been made. Um, and that demand cannot be met by the current level of inventories. And if you dig deep into the US data, you look at inventory to sales ratios in particular sectors, that's the story that's telling you, and particularly in the car industry. What you would hope for is that in time production rises to meet demand. There does seem to be enough slack in the labor market. Um, the US unemployment rate is just around 6% at the moment, a little bit above it. That's two and a half percentage points above the lows in 2019. And you know this burst in demand won't last, it will normalize as well. So to us, that's not a particularly um, serious inflation scenario. I do admit you can't take this for, for granted, but two things really follow from it. And the first thing is that you will see inflation remain high, probably in the States rise further for a while before coming down. And the second point in terms of the policy response from the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the US, um, the Fed will not react aggressively to the figures. We're certainly not looking at interest rates rising at any point soon. What we're likely to see at some stage is the Fed beginning to wind down or taper its quantitative easing program, its bond buying, most likely we think at the end of the year 
and actually perhaps not raise rates um, until 2023. But as I said, there's a lot of uncertainty here. We will need to see a few more months of data to, to be confident that we're understanding um, the inflation dynamics properly. Okay, um, now let's see what our guest, uh, Professor Michael Barrett, has to say about the latest situation on COVID, including the Indian variant. Mike, over to you. Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Phil. If this pandemic's taught us anything, it is to be prepared for surprises and uncertainty. Um, as of today, globally, we have 168 million cases, um, three and a half million people dead. And just to put that into some sort of context, we, we often compare this pandemic with the Spanish flu of 1918. And at that time, 500, and 500 or so million people were affected in the course of a year and around 50 million were dead. And I think that tells us that actually COVID-19 um, has been less problematic. It's certainly less um, pathogenic and deadly than the Spanish flu. Um, but perhaps the global response with the lockdowns and so on have, have been responsible for it spreading less quickly and widely than did the Spanish flu. Um, in the UK, we have four and a half million reported cases and 128,000 reported deaths. Um, again, in terms of, well, how bad is that? I think when I first came on to this um, webinar series, I'd anticipated we might be looking at about 80,000 deaths in the first year. Um, so we've, we've gone a little bit beyond that. Um, but I would actually say that the epidemic here has been worse than I'd anticipated uh, because I hadn't initially anticipated that the UK would uh, go into the kinds of lockdown that we have over the course of this year. And I, I do think that without the lockdowns, actually, we could have been looking at 500,000 or so deaths in the United Kingdom. Um, however, the incidence here is going down. It seems to stabilise around 2,000 new cases per day, um, which kind of sounds a lot, but it's, it's not compared to lots of other diseases. They're in the order of 2,000 new cancer diagnoses every day in the United Kingdom. And deaths now have been sustained in single figures for um, for for well over a week. Um, so I, I think at the moment the UK is well on its way out of this epidemic. We have, and you've just answered the question, uh, recently confronted the problem of the so-called new Indian variant. Um, good news came this week in the fact that the Indian variant or the variant which initially arose in India is susceptible to current vaccines. And what that means is that people who have had two vaccines uh, will not in all likelihood be hospitalized or die um, from this new variant. Um, the vaccine also works against previous new variants, those associated with Brazil, South Africa and, and Kent. Um, I think my one remaining worry um, is that the new variants so far have largely been selected evolutionarily uh, because they are more readily transmitted than previous variants. So it's all Darwinian evolution. These guys transmit more quickly. They therefore spread through the population more readily. We do see in the so-called Indian variant, for example, that it is less susceptible to vaccines than previous 
variants. What that means is that we we really are having to give people the two vaccines to get good protection against that variant. And what that indicates is that the changes in that so-called spike protein, which is the protein um, which is put into the vaccines against, we make our immune responses, the variants are moving the sequence away from that which is best hit by existing immunity. As more and more people across the world get vaccinated with those original S antigen vaccines, we're now going to be putting new pressures on the virus such that those which appear accidentally but are even less susceptible to the vaccines, they're the ones which are going to get into the population. So we really do need to keep an eye on new variants. We, we can't guarantee that our vaccines will always work against those new variants. We've got to watch them coming. We've got to sequence them. We've got to monitor them. The good news is, however, that those new vaccine technologies, which have enabled us to bring vaccines forward in record time, can be pretty readily adapted to cover those new variants as well. So I think we're always going to be able to keep a handle even on new variants, although there will always be a time lag between them appearing, producing a new vaccine, testing a new vaccine, and of course, the logistics of getting those new vaccines into the population. That, that is my my remaining worry, um, although I don't wish to sound too gloomy because, because really I think the vaccines have been a phenomenal success. Because of those successes, I thought what I would do today is begin to talk about the end game and to talk about lessons learned um, and perhaps with extreme optimism to stop thinking about COVID-19 and think about, well, what have we learned from this pandemic which will enable us to prevent a future pandemic? Um, so I think if I had five lessons, this is from the public health point of view, holy Phil to uh, talk about the economics um, and I think it is critical I think you know lots of the tensions that we've seen at the socio-political level has, have been around how public health and economy work together to try to deal with a crisis because because they may in some instances be mutually incompatible. Um, I think the first lesson we need to bear in mind is that in the future if we see anything like this happening again act fast and act tough. Um, secondly, and if I talk in cliches, forgive me, um, but we really must follow the science. Um, but actually, we also need to realise that not all scientists have the same opinion and we need to try to make sure that where possible, we follow the good science and avoid the bad. Um, I think that now having established a fantastic surveillance capability in the UK to, to deal with COVID-19, uh, we should sustain epidemic surveillance to make sure that we don't have a lag um, before we can start screening to the extent that we can now um, for the next pandemic that may come along. I think we need to invest in preparedness technology. I think we've seen just how, how good the vaccines have been, but there are other things that we can do to make sure that we are ready for the next one. Um, and I think the final thing I would recommend that we begin to look to do is to overhaul medical regulation. We've managed to get vaccines out in record time, um, and that's because of fantastic efforts to enable us to, to go through the regulatory hurdles to get there. Um, 
usually regulation is a lot slower than that and it needn't be um, and also although the vaccines have been a tremendous success we've we've also seen some some pretty sort of uh, dodgy things happening in the terms of, of regulation for trials that we need to keep an eye on so if i can now perhaps just um, elaborate a little bit on some of those points so firstly act fast and act tough well the virus was initially recognized as causing serious pneumonia in china on the 31st of december 2019 by the 23rd of january the chinese in wuhan had established this extraordinary lockdown it was unprecedented i think in um, medical history uh, but they did it and they felt that they had to do it because they had a policy they'd already seen sars in 2003 and realized just how devastating the potential of these respiratory viruses was uh, so they were ready to do it and they did it of course i think from the uk perspective we then began to watch italy struggling massively throughout late february they closed down in march uh, march the 9th now i know the uk hadn't yet seen a respiratory virus spreading of this nature um, and there were conversations even with very sensible people that there was something intrinsically different about society in Italy that made them more vulnerable to a respiratory virus. But most people in public health didn't think that that was the case at all. Um, the UK could have closed down earlier in March, uh, didn't. And by moving on to the 23rd of March, um, I think many thousands of lives were lost, which needn't have been lost. And actually, the because of the um, the logarithmic growth of, of of viral infections of this sort had we gone in to lockdown a week earlier two weeks earlier we would have come out a lot earlier as well um, and then actually we we to some extent repeated the mistake in the late part of the year um, and really going into lockdown in january february has uh, again has been has been marvelous i think for the united kingdom especially because it it happened along with the um the rollout of the vaccine act tough um i think that the uk didn't act tough enough i think the first lockdown well actually most people through fear uh, did stay inside um but lots of the contact tracing you know by the time the test and trace was was testing massively well the contacts were being made but enforcement of people quarantining was pretty lousy and i think in the future we need to take a, a rather more uh, serious approach to mandatory quarantining um, apps should perhaps be used compulsorily and people need to be obliged to stay indoors rather than kind of leave it up to them to decide whether they want to or not so we need to act fast and we need to act tough at any time that this happens again. And we need to follow the good science um, and avoid the bad. So the government has SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, and for the most part, they do have a very rich collection of, of very good people. Um, not everybody agrees with everything all of the time, but most of the epidemiologists on SAGE and in consultation with each other uh, really did understand the epidemiology of the disease, the pathology and the risks. And SAGE were actually pushing for lockdowns earlier than uh, the government opted to take it. Um, 
of course there are scientists who may offer other opinions and i'm i'm not sure whether or not it's correct that uh, the government actually pulled in a group of the uh, less good scientists in my opinion those who were supportive of policies like herd immunity um, because quite rightly i think the government did want to hear alternative opinions but um, but actually the herd immunity policy was always going to be catastrophic um, and we can see in countries like brazil and india where without necessarily following a policy of herd immunity we can see what happens when you do let a virus rip through the community um, i suspect that we're going to hear a lot from dominic cummings tomorrow about this based on his uh, weekend twitter feed um, but you know herd immunity was a possibility most epidemiologists could have looked at that in the context of what we were seeing in terms of the spread and the pathogenicity of the disease and, and really ruled it out. And therefore, scientists who were promoting that policy um, should have uh, been, I think, defeated in any um, rational debate about that. So uh, we do need to follow the science. We need to follow good science and we need to be careful that we can weed out um, less good science. The third thing I think that's important is that we do sustain the epidemic surveillance that we've we've put into place now. And really, I think by that, um, I know from personal experience, having been involved in setting up one of the lighthouse labs here in Glasgow, um, is that we now do have world-beating capability to quickly screen for um, the viruses and know where they are and this this is what's really enabling us to see where the clusters are where we need to intervene perhaps locally to prevent us having to intervene nationally where we can because of the sophistication and the ability of the of the network to find cases now um, we also need to keep the sequencing capability going because the way that we discovered the new kent variant was by sequencing the genome the the variant which has emerged in India, we can see that and where it's spreading based on sequencing and we can predict based on the sequence of the virus to some extent where we might see um, other variants emerging which could be those potentially disastrous vaccine escape mutants. So we, we need to maintain this infrastructure, but not just for COVID-19. Now we have this infrastructure we need to maintain it and have it ready to spark up again for the next pandemic causing virus or pathogen. Um, the labs do cost quite a lot of money, but I think there are ways that one can uh, look at their maintenance, perhaps handing them over to different sorts of research entity to, to keep them going, if you like, in, in basic research into epidemiology, but with a government maintained background piece of work going on to be constantly surveying for any new viruses and have those labs ready to to reach capacity again should we find ourselves with another epidemic um, i think we need to prepare for the next pandemic through technology development and i, I can't over emphasize how amazing the vaccine rollout has been i think if you'd asked me a year ago, 
I would have said there's no way that we would have vaccines in 2021. And I would have been optimistic to say we would have them by the middle of 2022. Vaccines under normal circumstances take 10 years to develop. The reason we were able to do this was actually because of an organisation, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, um, which had actually been established by Bill Gates, the Wellcome Trust in the United Kingdom, uh, the governments of India, Norway and Germany, to specifically look at whether there were technological solutions to enable us to produce vaccines more quickly than the classical route. Classical vaccines involved getting viruses, building factories to cultivate huge numbers of viruses, inactivate or kill them and put them into people. It takes a long time. But with our modern understanding and ability to manipulate genetics, people came up with ideas such as, well, rather than growing up a whole virus, the immune system doesn't recognize the whole virus. It recognizes small parts of a virus that we call antigens, such as the S antigen. And we can make antigens in people because we can put RNA into people. The RNA will go into their cells and will produce those proteins against which you're going to make those immune responses very, very quickly. We can put genes into adenoviruses and take those into people. So the, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations had invested tens of millions into these new technologies um, with the hope that one day those technologies would reach fruition and we could roll them out. And, and sure enough, come last March, um, the companies that have been producing these new technologies were in a position to check them out with the coronavirus antigens. And hey presto, before the end of 2021, uh, we had a range of new vaccines out there which have, have been doing this extraordinary work. So it's worked fantastically for vaccines, um, but you don't just need the vaccines. We also need to make sure that the testing capability is good. The PCR test that we use as a gold standard is actually a relatively old technology. Um, and we've seen a lot of development of other diagnostic capability, the famous lateral flow tests, perhaps not as good as we would like them to be. Um, but I've been watching a whole series of new diagnostic approaches to enable us to be able to quickly see viruses and infections and get those into, into place. We were talking just before we came on of the dog breath or the dog sniffing capability and it works um, and actually that's closely associated with another new technology that's rolled out in uh, being rolled out in Singapore of um, of actually effectively using devices which have the same capability of dogs noses to detect small chemicals associated with the disease they're not mature technologies yet but we need to accelerate the speed at which we turn these into mature technologies so we're ready to have quick and hopefully cheap diagnostics available for the next outbreak. And of course, drugs. Um, drugs have been a little bit of a disappointment, I think, for COVID-19. We haven't had great antivirals at all. Um, remdesivir at one point was the was the great sort of hope, but but even that hasn't proven itself to be great against uh, the coronaviruses. Um, and there is now an antiviral drugs task force. I don't think it will do as well as the vaccine task force did. Um, but there is a push to try to build a library of antiviral chemicals that we might be able to 
roll out for use against different viruses as they emerge. Um, and actually the big success in anti-COVID chemotherapy has come using old anti-inflammatory drugs and new anti-inflammatory drugs. I think there's there's clever thinking in there as well. You sort of intuitively think you want a drug against a virus, but actually drugs against the disease have been those which have been most successful for, for COVID-19. And we need to begin to roll out even newer technologies, new kinds of drugs that might be effective. Uh, believe it or not, RNA, which has become so famous because of its use in various vaccines, itself may be a therapeutic drug as well. You can actually, there are ways that you can manipulate RNA to turn down, for example, the receptors on our cells that bind to the coronavirus. But there's got to be huge technological developments to enable us to exploit these kinds of new technology. Uh, the final area I would look is in overhauling medical regulation. Um, one of the reasons I would have thought it would be impossible to roll out vaccines for use in 2021 is that any drug development I've been involved in, um, you end up going into the regulatory process literally for years. Um, part of that is there's a lot of toing and froing between the regulatory agency and the drug developers. And part of it is just because the regulatory agencies are overwhelmed in terms of their resourcing. They cannot deal with everybody's data dossiers as quickly as uh, as would be liked. And that leads to huge delays. Um, of course, because of the emergency situation, regulatory authorities were able to, to put more resource towards the COVID-19 um, approaches and good work was done to make sure that those vaccines as they came out um, had been properly assessed as well as they could be, but all done in very, very quick time because of that prioritization. Um, so I think we need to look at medical regulation to enable us to get those um, inventions out there as quickly as we can. But we also need to look a little bit at some of the failures as well. Um, again, because of the emergency situation, there was a little bit of, of the Wild West appearing in terms of drugs which may or may not work. I think hydroxychloroquine, which uh, Donald Trump was particularly keen on, as was Bolsonaro. Um, no evidence really for it whatsoever. Um, the pivotal French study was was actually garbage, um, but you know, nevertheless, because of the emergency situation, we did enable potentially dangerous things to go forward uh, because we weren't able to to prevent that um, in the ways that we should do. So I think changing regulation of how we get inventions out is important. So so they're the five things that I would hope that we've learned from this pandemic. Um, I'm uncharacteristically optimistic, especially since we saw the the data that the um, so-called Indian variant is responding to vaccines. Um, and I I really hope that we are in the end game now, vaccines working. Let's keep making them. Let's keep distributing them around the world, uh, because I think it is true, though it's another cliche that um, none of us are safe until all of us are safe, because we don't want those new variants to be fermenting out there in other parts of the world to come back here and beat the vaccines that have gone into everybody. So um, we just keep making vaccines, distribute them, and I think we will win. Thank you. Mike, thanks very much for that. Um, you very generously as ever.
have agreed to face the usual onslaught of questions. But before I, I start on that, um, please still feel free to, to submit your questions either to, to Mike on the coronavirus or indeed to myself on the economy. And we'll, we'll try and get as many questions in as we can. But um, before I do that, um, apologies for what might be seen as a bit of a double negative in the question. 58% um, of you um, said we shouldn't suspend the lifting of all social restrictions on the 21st of June, um, which means that the timetable, the majority of you feel that the timetable should remain on track. So um, if you are confused, that might actually include myself. Um, apologies for that. Um, first question that's come through is, Mike, what do you think the chances are um, of the uh, vaccine resistant variant? And I know you did mention that, you know, the, the, the vaccines could be tweaked to um, deal with the, the various variants. But what do you think the risks are? I think I think the risk is is real. Um, it's hopefully not catastrophically real but but effectively viruses mutate all the time and uh, the s antigen is the one protein of the virus against which the vaccines so far have been produced um, and although that s antigen is itself pretty big and what that means is that you actually make immune responses to get tiny bits of a, of a of a total antigen, things that we call epitopes. And there are literally hundreds of different epitopes across the S antigen. And we will make responses to many of those epitopes. Um, however, just the nature of the immune system means that there are some of those epitopes against which we preferentially make those immune responses. And as you begin to mutate those particular epitopes away your immune response will become less effective the the risk is that now we've got so many vaccines into so many people across the world the chance of a mutation appearing which is then selected because that's the mutation which won't be hit by the vaccine is is growing ever larger um, so th there is a risk i'm hopeful it's not that huge because we continue to make immune responses against other parts of that protein and that's why the advice is even on the indian variant you must really get the two jabs because you boost the overall immunity against a range of those epitopes as you go along and that's why also thinking of a third booster even of the old vaccine for the new variants because you will bring into play more of those little parts the epitopes of the antigen as we go along so i would say some risk need to watch out for it um, but at the moment i think we can deal with it okay um i'm going to be a bit cheeky and sneak my own question here um you you hinted a couple of times actually that um you said for example um next time we have to act faster and tougher um in a couple um you of other places where you alluded to um you know further vaccine work do, do you think that the world is now more susceptible to, to viruses or do you just think that this has just opened our eyes to the risks and we have to deal with it no we we're more susceptible to viruses um because of the huge growth in human population the infringement of human populations into the natural world 
Uh, we still don't know precisely what the origin of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was, um, but it's very, very likely it was from a bat, um, either directly or indirectly through wild animals in the wild animal market in Wuhan. Um, so the more that humans come into contact with different wild animals, the more viruses there are that are out there that wouldn't previously have gotten into humans, and they may not even be pathogenic in their natural hosts, but will then just rip through human populations. And I, I do, um, it's pretty clear because we've, we've seen this, but you know, we've seen Zika, we've seen the original SARS, we see Ebola. Um, we do keep on seeing new viruses entering the human population. So we, we do have to be ready for them. Okay, the next question that's come through um, is that we, we were told at the time that the, the Kent, the South African Brazilian viruses were um, more transmissible. Um, it, has there been any real evidence that, that that's ever the case? And I guess the, the implication is you know, how confident are we that the latest Indian virus is more transmissible? Uh, they are more transmissible and the I guess the original evidence is all based on the epidemiology. If you imagine you've got two viruses out there, one of them is more transmissible than another one. What you'll see over time is that more people get the more transmissible virus than the other one, and that that's how we that's how we really caught the the Kent the South Africa Brazilian variants. Um, the Indian variant, it's it, it was looking highly likely that it was also much more contagious it's it's been a it's been questioned a bit in recent days i i think it it is um and that you, you can then follow that up in the laboratory by taking those variant viruses and seeing how readily they invade and how quickly they replicate inside cellular systems which are mimicking our our bodies and all of those variants have been shown to replicate more quickly in those cellular systems. Okay, um, lots of questions coming through. I'll try and get through as many as I can. What's the scientific reason for imposing day two and day eight tests plus self-isolation on travel from countries such as the States, um, where, where you've got really high advances in vaccination? Um, you know, in particular, if you've been vaxxed twice, do you think that's appropriate? Um, I, I, I think if you've received two doses of the vaccine, you shouldn't have to be tested, um, especially repeat tested or, or, or necessarily quarantine at the moment. So whilst we, from what we know about the efficacy of the vaccines, I think the, um, uh, there's there's very small risk of vaccinated people transmitting virus in a country if they're coming from the you know and, but but even then there's still plenty of virus here I don't know how much extra virus a traveler from the US is going to going to bring here um, we just need to keep monitoring for those new variants and act accordingly if we find them okay um you you mentioned tweaking the vaccine um what is the development timeline for a tweaked vaccine um so, the, so literally the producing the tweaked vaccine can be done overnight for the rna vaccines you literally you you type in a sequence of the rna that's going to make the vaccine and the next day instead of churning out the old vaccine you'll be churning out the new rna that but the timeline actually is going to be that, that we although we're very 
confident that the technology works because you are producing something which is new you're going to have to put that into people initially in small numbers to make sure that it's safe um, and then in increasing numbers uh, to to sustain that that safety but i i suspect depending on the seriousness of of, of any forthcoming emergency you could actually have a new vaccine tested for safety and ready to go within a month or two. I'm going to group a couple of questions. We've got plenty coming through. So um, a double question coming up, which is um, with the recent partial reopening and you know the possible full reopening on the 21st, how would you expect infection rates to rise? I know that's a difficult question over the next few months. And also, would you recommend maintaining the, the gel and the hand washing regime going forward? And, and, and if so, for how long? Yep. Uh, so I anticipate that we're going to see a mini third wave according to numbers of infection. Um, and I, I see that as absolutely inevitable, irrespective of Indian variants or, or any other new variants, uh, simply because we still have a large number of people who haven't been vaccinated, especially younger people. Um, they will get out, they will infect each other. We've got testing, we will find that they're infected through the testing system. Um, so I, I think we we will watch numbers go up from around two-ish thousand now to four, five, six thousand a day over the summer. Um, what I also believe is that the majority of those people will be young people. They will have no symptoms or mild cold. Um, very few will have worse than that and i don't anticipate that we're going to see a big jump in hospitalizations or death so i i think we'll see a, a mini third wave but it will be divorced from hospitalizations and death um and in my opinion um therefore it's it's i wouldn't say it's something to not worry about altogether because we still don't yet know what long-term consequences things like long COVID may have on the population. Um, but I don't foresee that the government's going to be obliged to call for another lockdown um, because lockdowns are to prevent hospitals overfilling and people dying needlessly because they can't get hospital care. Um, hand washing, use of gels, I tell you, I think I will personally be washing my hands and carrying ethanol gels around with me forever. Um, I think we've discovered that apart from risks or no risks of picking up COVID-19, what we used to be told about washing our hands before dinner and general cleanliness holds pretty true for that as well. I might even be tempted um, to wear a mask in particular circumstances forevermore. Um, we just, we know they work and I'd be very pleased if I diminish my chance of getting colds and flus and other things, let alone COVID-19. So. Um, I, I would suggest people continue to think about those measures irrespective of coronavirus. Okay, thank you very much. Um, two more questions. Um, if the government's really looking at hospital capacity, um, do you think vaccine production and distribution can keep us ahead of that, especially in the winter? And how good do you think the Chinese vaccines are? And given that, you know, most people anecdotally seem to prefer the Pfizer vaccine, is there a cheap alternative to it? Um, so I think the capacity in hospitals will 
be okay as long as we don't have a variant uh, which is beating the current vaccines and given the the lag time in development you know if we did have to spend two months developing testing a new vaccine and then however long it's going to take to get it into everybody uh, it could get pretty pretty hairy then um, but i i hope that's not going to be the case chinese vaccines don't appear to be as efficacious or as either pfizer moderna or astrazeneca um, at the moment uh, there could be advantages with the Chinese vaccines, though, because the, the two leading ones are whole virus, the killed viruses. What that means is that there are many more viral antigens than that S antigen going into people. Um, so actually, the Chinese vaccines could probably beat uh, current S antigen vaccine escape mutants. So, so it could be if there is a a problem of a new variant that we'll we'll all be looking for the Chinese vaccines, irrespective of them being apparently less efficacious. Um, yeah, the Pfizer vaccine, um, the Pfizer vaccine seems to give a bigger immune response more quickly than AstraZeneca, um, and I think that's probably because the technology enables you to make more of the S protein more quickly than the way that the same genes delivered for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, I, I think the big price problem with the Pfizer isn't just the synthesis. The synthesis price will go down. It had been the required storage at minus 80 degrees and, and the cold chain. Um, and again, it's, it's great news that last week it turned out that you don't need minus 80 degrees storage for the Pfizer vaccine for the long term, as had previously been um, considered necessary. So the Pfizer vaccine cost should be coming down already um, because of the loss of the requirement for minus 80 storage. So, uh, and again, I think the, the RNA vaccines will continue to come down in price. Okay, thanks very much. I think I've got a couple of questions just to give you a break for two minutes, Mike, before we roll on to the final few. Um, but one economic question is, um, given relatively low levels of vaccination in Southeast Asia and Japan, uh, to date at, at least matched by low infection rates, what's the outlook for those economies? And I, I think, you know, it, it, it's been pretty striking, hasn't it, that if you've got a state of emergency in Tokyo, that's a completely level, a different level uh, of infection from the, the Western world. And, you know, I think in, in Mike's words, they, they, they act early and they act hard. And the, the Chinese economic recovery, I think, came through more quickly because of that and because it originated in China. Um, but Southeast Asia has done pretty well out of that. Now, what's happened subsequently is that the Chinese economy seems to have slowed down somewhat. It's probably not due to COVID. Um, the Chinese authorities are trying to reduce financial leverage as well and their attempts are slowing the economy down. So I think the lesson here is that um, the, the, the COVID situations in Southeast Asia aren't necessarily a constraint to growth, but there are lots of other things going on, plenty of moving parts on the global economy, and it's those other moving parts perhaps that are likely to, to cause at least a temporary slowdown in, in Southeast Asia. And another quick question on the economy it's clear the developed world's doing well with vaccination but that's not the same with the developing world um, what does this mean for travel and supply chains 
certainly in terms of travel, you will see high infection rate countries remain on red or amber lists. So um, that will certainly dent their tourism opportunities. Supply chains, you would hope, less affected. Work continues. There are other things affecting supply chains at the moment. Um, if anybody has seen our our monthly publication, which we did yesterday, um, container um, prices on ships have increased wildly, and there are several reasons for that. Um, but that's another example, I think, of plenty of things going on in the world economy, and it's not necessarily just a COVID um, story. Um, I think we've got time very briefly for, for two um, questions. Um, one is how significant is the health crisis that's evident in non-COVID areas, i.e., for example, mental health issues, uh, lack of cancer screening, lack of GP appointments during the pandemic? I'll, I'll let you answer that single one, Mike. It's it's a huge problem, and um, it's and, and not just um, sort of mental health, cancer diagnosis, other diagnoses. I mean, things like tuberculosis globally has not been looked at and we're going to see a growing epidemic of things like tuberculosis um what i hope is you know is is and from a holistic sense also with the economy which goes back a little bit as well to one of my lessons learned on medical regulation and development of technology i think we also need to be looking really hard at developing new technologies to help us out of this backlog that we've got now on diagnosis we will put huge pressure on the health service again if everybody who hasn't had a cancer diagnosis in the last year and a bit has to turn up at the same time to get those diagnoses. Not everybody who thinks they may have a cancer will have it. So I think we need to, to look at ways of enhancing technology to help triage in the health service um, from the worried well as well. So it's a huge problem. Um, mental health, I fear, could there could be impacts on that for generations to come you just think of you know people at a particular time of their life who have been brought up in lockdown I, I don't know um how they're going to cope with aspects in the world so it's, it's a big big problem and it's one but there's a big big opportunity as well um if we can use the absolute necessity to deal with this now for some of those technological and and um uh, regulatory advances we need to do it Okay, um, time for one very brief question. Um, it's very topical from the States. Do you believe that patents for vaccines should be waived? Um, yes, and uh, but I think there should be, obviously not all vaccines um, because there'll be no innovation here, but there, there must be some, some other mechanism to make sure that the innovators remain incentivized to continue to do this work and also rewarded uh, for the work that they've done and um, I, I think that can be achieved with a temporary waiver on patents to enable the vaccines to be made and used as widely as we can um, but but obviously we need to make sure that incentivization remains in place for people to continue to do this for um, the future